down to earth on News Talk with a Monday, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better world for all. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, you'll want to have a glass on hand as we explore our world of water. Sinead O'Brien of the Sustainable Water Action Network gives us the lowdown on Ireland's water quality. Trish Murphy tells us how Inishowen River Trust is slowing the flow to manage flooding in Donegal. Barry Dean explains the risk of pollution to our drinking water supplies. And from the USA, Charity Water's Brian Hoyer takes us around the world to fight for clean water. And finally, the winky weatherman Gerald Fleming is my guest this week for My Green Life, where he'll explain how his career as a meteorologist brought him to the front lines of the climate crisis. It's time to head down to earth. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth@newstalk.com, and we're on episode seven of the series now. So tell us what topic or guests that you've enjoyed the most so far. But now, with only half of our rivers and lakes in good health in Ireland, my guests today are here to discuss some of the causes and solutions to our growing water quality problem. But now, with only half of our rivers and lakes in good health in Ireland, my guests today are here to discuss some of the causes and solutions to our growing water quality problem. Sinead O'Brien is the network coordinator for Ireland's Sustainable Water Network, SWAN. Trish Murphy is the project coordinator at Inishowen River Trust in beautiful Donegal. And Barry Dean is CEO of the National Federation of Group Water Schemes. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hi, Cara. Hi, Cara. Sinead, there's been more and more talk about sustainability and environmental health in the media and among our politicians. Yet when it comes to water quality, the status of Ireland surface waters is continuing to deteriorate. How bad is the situation now? Yeah, it's, it's actually quite bad. And I would describe it as a crisis, as um, I think, as you said in your introduction, more than half our rivers and lakes and our estuaries indeed are in an unhealthy state now. Um, and not only that, but things are going in the wrong direction. So water quality is declining and water pollution is actually on the up at a rate that I've never seen in my 17 years of working in this area. In fact, we used to be quite critical that the improvement in water quality was happening too slowly. So we actually got quite alarmed when the last EPA water quality report came out and there was more than a 5% decline in river water quality. And we're also losing our most precious pristine rivers there's just 20 of them left now down from like more than 500 in the 1980s. And these are really important because they're like our refuges for nature and hotspots for biodiversity, but also just for your listeners, they're those stunning places that you see in the tourist brochures that we want to go on our holidays, you know, in Connemara, lovely rivers like the Bundoraka in Mayo, they still have a population of freshwater pearl mussels, which is one of the most highly endangered species in, the, in Europe now. And, um, and, and we only have, and our aquatic areas are also very important for wider biodiversity because a lot of Ireland's biodiversity is housed in our water and wetlands and only uh, five of our water dependent habitats are now in favourable cons- conservation status. Gosh, so we've so, gone we've gone from 500 pristine rivers in the 1980s to just 20 in a few decades. That's 
an incredible decline. What are the main sources of pollution in this case? So there's the the science is very good on this now. And um, there's been a lot of assessment done by the EPA catchment unit, and they've more or less assessed all of the water bodies in Ireland. And what's clear is that there's three main causes. Agriculture is one. Discharges of wastewater, aka sewage pollution, is the second. And the third one is um, what's technically called physical modifications to our water bodies. But what really just means if you see anybody going near a river or a lake or the bay, with a digger doing work, that's physical modifications. And then specifically in relation to our pristine water bodies, they are so sensitive that they're, they can be tipped over by a range of even small pressures. So in their case, because they're often found in the uplands, forestry is the main issue. And again, then also agriculture. I remember hearing years ago, a scientist in the EPA saying that if a sheep that had been just sheep dipped crossed a river it would be enough to wipe out the status the good status of that river for like a kilometer downstream wow from the chemicals off the sheep presumably yeah from wow. the chemicals off the sheep so i think it's what's what's inter- the interesting question to ask ourselves is why have things suddenly declined because we've had all this investment we have this great new unit in the epa and new local authorities off waters office um, and if you look at the timeline the EPA have linked it to um, to the the um, uh, the milk quota going and the intensification in dairy, and you can see that in the data now coming from the EPA, especially in areas where dairy is most intensive. Uh, you can see water quality decline. Barry, the crisis that Sinead is describing, it affects nature and ecology, as she said, but it also affects our human health via our drinking water. So you're a CEO of a federation of group water schemes around the country, mostly in rural areas. What have your members observed regarding the quality of their drinking water supplies? We've noticed some similar trends, I suppose, just to say that there's 370 regulated group water scheme supplies. These are community-owned supplies with their own private source. Uh, right across the country, they're, they're mostly located in the in the north and west, but but there's generally a good spread across the entire country, um, and they're supplying drinking water out to seventy five thousand households or almost two two hundred thousand people, and again there, there's fairly strict standards set for for drinking water in the in the country, and these schemes have to comply with that, and and most schemes have some form of treatment in place. But we've been encouraging our members over the last number of years to to start analysing their untreated water. So basically testing the untreated water before it goes through the treatment system to see well, what are the issues and can we understand it? Can we try and prevent them coming in, getting into the water in the first place? So as Sinead said, yeah, we are seeing in- increased trends in, in things like, for example, E. coli and particular strains of E. coli. So things like VTEC E. coli, which I think Ireland has one of the highest incidences of VTEC E. coli across Europe. Um, but we're also seeing trends in and, and, and worrying trends, I suppose, in, in relation to increases in, in, in nitrate levels, but also levels of the pesticides in our drinking water as well, which is something we're we're uh, we're obviously very concerned about and we don't we don't want to see. But we, we think that we want to encourage schemes to uh, work with their communities to prevent these things coming into their water in the first place, because many group water schemes around the country simply don't have the treatment facilities to take out, for example, nitrate or pesticides if they become a problem. So we, we, we have a, a very strong campaign at the minute to try and encourage group water schemes to work with their local communities and, and others to 
prevent these coming into the drinking water into the first place. And so we know pesticide uh, use is on the increase in agriculture and farming in Ireland and also in, in people's gardens. There, there's more and more of that which is contaminating water supplies. But what are the health effects if these kind of contaminants get into the drinking water? The drinking water limits set fairly stringent limits and th- these are effectively they're, they're toxic chemicals, you know, and, and the I suppose the drinking water regulations set the safeguard limit for these. So Obviously, if these if these chemicals get into our system, get into our drinking water, then they can cause significant illness. So, from our perspective, you know, prevention is is, is obviously much more better than cure. We don't have and studies have shown across the across the world that investment in source protection can actually help you know reduce the, the need for treatment and and indeed reduce the treatment costs in the long run. So there's not alone obviously the, the wider environmental benefits if you can if you can avoid these contaminants getting into your 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 water source in the first place. The EPA said that up to a million people in Ireland are at risk of E. coli via private drinking water supplies. So to what extent do you think that E. coli is a problem in Irish drinking water and what's causing that? Yeah, it's 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 a particular problem um, and, and we've noticed the increasing levels as I said in, in ground water supplies and, and E. coli is one of those uh, uh, contaminants that can cause you know significant illness to to particularly people that are, are immunocompromised or, or even young people in particular. Thankfully, the group water scheme sector, I suppose in particular, basic disinfection facilities are in place across the, the, the regulated group water scheme supplies. And it's, it's making sure that, that I suppose those systems are, are operating correctly. And thankfully, they, that can deal with, with and treat E. coli. But again, Sinead mentioned in particular the main sources of contamination that the EPA have identified. And I suppose from a rural water context, generally the pressures are probably twofold in, in terms of one, obviously coming from, from agriculture, but, but also from domestic wastewater treatment systems as well, will be a significant contributor to E. coli levels in, in groundwater supplies across the country. So people just not not cleaning out their septic tanks uh, appropriately. Trish, I'm always taken with communities who take matters into their own hands, and Inishow and River Trust has certainly done that when it comes to protection of your water resources in Donegal. First, can you explain why Inishow and River Trust Trust was set up in 2016? Well, in 2016, we became a company, first of all, Cara. Um, but before that, there had been a lot of planning into building up towards becoming a Rivers Trust. So I suppose it started really back in 2013 when we started on a river walk project in Moville. So um, a group of us got together and we worked with the tidy towns to um, rejuvenate it, to clean it up. It was basically used as a bit of a dump. And um, we cleaned all that up and it turned out to be a really good experience. And while we were doing this, we chatted to a lot of people. And one of those people was Dr. Liam Campbell, who works with the Lochnay Partnership. Now, um, Liam is from the Inishone area and he just got involved as a volunteer. But he started to talk to us about a Rivers Trust. And then we went to visit um, Ballanderry Rivers Trust in Cookstown. Um, in Northern Ireland. So a busload of us went up there um, to chat to them and we were very inspired by what was happening up there and about how community can help into addressing some of the issues on our rivers. Now ours came from a very positive perspective. We wanted to create uh, a recreational space and a beautiful space for people to walk in but also there are other reasons why trusts form. You know um, sometimes it can be because of a fish kill Um, Sometimes it's a bunch of um, farmers who will come together 
uh, you know, with common interests. So it's people with common interests coming together. And I suppose really the, the, the main interest that everybody um, has in common is that we all love rivers. You're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk. My guests are Sinead O'Brien, Trish Murphy and Barry Dean, all talking to me about Ireland's water quality crisis. Trish, in August of 2017, the Inishowen area suffered a rare but serious flood, and that led the River Trust down an interesting journey. Can you tell us how the community decided to address flooding after that experience? After the flood in August 2017, there was a lot of distress in the community. A lot of people had been impacted by the flood, um, not just within Inishowen, but also across Derry as well. So it had a big, big impact And so the trust had been formed about a year at that stage, and we felt a little bit helpless because we're not an agency, we didn't have any money at the time. So one of the things we looked at was about what are the possible solutions to flooding. So we looked towards the UK and we saw that natural flood management had become uh, more and more important through the work of Rivers Trusts in the UK. And there just happened to be an autumn conference in the UK that year, uh, which focused on natural flood management. So I was lucky enough to be able to go to that. So explain explain what natural flood management is. Well, natural flood management is where you use nature-based solutions to help alleviate flooding. Usually small measures, Cara, so little things like leaky dams or an offline pond or a bund or riparian planting. And by installing lots of small measures, you can help to slow the flow. And, and so this is something, am I happened. right? This is something that's been demonstrated successfully in, in places like the UK and Wales. So you're not just coming up with this idea on your own, are you? There's been some very large projects in the UK. So um, in Wales, there was the Pontbren project, which was a group of farmers who had come together and had observed, you know, they had a lot of issues Um, on their catchments and they realised that their water quality was deteriorating quite significantly. But they also made lots of observations about what they were doing. And one of those key things would have been runoff management and the use of woodlands. So they planted quite a lot of trees at the time. And that was, you know, back in the 90s, the late 90s, they, they planted hundreds of thousands of trees and they have found the positive impacts of that. Still to this day, um, riparian planting, woodland management is one of the key measures in natural flood management. It's not always the right one. It depends. You need the right tree in the right place. So um, it's about looking and studying the area and deciding which are the best measures in your area. So you're now trying to get landowners in the Inishowen area to, to do similar kinds of things. How is that working out for you? Um, well, we we did a scoping project um, back in 2019 with um, Professor Mary Burke in Trinity College. That was really to look at the potential for um, doing a, a natural flood management project within Inishowen. And so we looked at a number of areas. Then once that project was completed, we've now gone forward for funding to actually implement some measures in one of the areas, which would be the village of Clonmany. Um, over in northwest of Vinishowen. So um, it's quite a large catchment. And so we're not going to be covering the whole catchment, but it's to look at the measures that can go in place uh, and to speak to landowners about, you know, what kind of measure can we put in here? What's appropriate? Do you want it? You know, it's very much about uh, what the community wants as well. Barry, your own Federation of Group Water Schemes has also championed a local initiative and recently won a European Innovation Partnership Award for a project in Roscommon. Can you tell us more about that local project and why the Federation decided that this was something worth pursuing? We developed a source protection pilot project in Roscommon 
and Monaghan and Westmead back in 2018. So across a number of these group water schemes we were working with, we noticed elevated levels of pesticides were detected in the in the untreated water. So we were trying to come up with sort of innovative ways of encouraging, I suppose, the communities to, to, to get involved and, 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 and to try and help and particularly working with landowners and as Trish said, you know, trying to encourage and work with with people and maybe explain the, the impact of, of what they were what was what they were doing, I suppose, the impacts that, that it was having on the water. Because in many cases, uh, for example, farmers and householders using pesticides probably don't fully appreciate or realize the impact that it can have. So we came up with this concept or this idea of um, rather than, than focusing on the, on the water quality issue, we focused on um, trying to enhance and improve biodiversity. And uh, I have to say the communities bought into it uh, really, really well. And uh, we, we encouraged, I suppose, a number of farmers on particular areas along rivers and streams that were feeding into drinking water sources. The project gave them a, a series of beehives and asked the farmers then to, to I suppose, try and create little corridors and, and little areas of wildflower along the rivers and streams for, so the bees could forage. And the net benefit of this, obviously, was that uh, the farmer was going to reduce his pesticide usage and, and therefore the net benefit was the water quality hopefully would, 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 see, would see reductions as well. But the communities really, and the group water schemes in particular got behind the project and it really took off. And, and I have to give commend the schemes involved because they've got the local schools involved, they've got the local community groups involved. So they're creating bee hotels that are giving out to all the houses in the drinking water catchment. And through word of mouth, the initiative, I suppose, we now have over uh, 14 farmers engaged in this particular project um, and more that are interested in coming to us and say they want to get involved. This, so was, this was called the Let It Be pilot program. And I love the way you were connecting biodiversity there with water protection, which we, we don't do enough connecting these environmental issues. Sinead, as a network of about 25 environmental groups working to protect Ireland's waters, your organization, SWAN, takes both the top-down and bottom-up approach. So you're working locally with people like Barry and Trish, but you're also working at a national and EU level on water policy. So what do you think is the solution to addressing the problem of deteriorating water quality in Ireland? Yeah, so I do think, yeah, as you say, it's very much a balance of, you know, working with local communities, but also giving them the space that they need by looking at the national policy changes that would be outside maybe of their geographical remit at least to change and so looking back then at what the main pressures are each of those in turn would need to be addressed so the first one is agriculture and we we need really a dramatic shift in agriculture policy away from the model of intensification that's now clearly linking us to declines in in water quality and also in biodiversity and climate change emissions uh, increases as well uh, we also need proper investment in uh, wastewater treatment. So we've had historic underinvestment for uh, decades upon decades. And I think the EPA have been putting a lot of pressure on Irish water. But I think there's also um, an obligation on the Irish government to put in the investment we need now to stop the discharge of raw sewerage and also the discharge of inadequately treated sewerage, which it mightn't be raw, but it's still causing a lot of ecological problems. And then the third thing that needs to happen at a national policy level is we need regulations on physical alterations and interference with rivers, lakes and bays. So we've, we've needed them for since 2012 and we, we still don't have them. And we're actually in trouble with the EU Commission over that. Um, and that would include then things like drainage, riparian wetlands. And that ties in with what Barry and Trish were saying as well about biodiversity and also flood attenuation. Because if we could stop the widespread drainage that's happening at the moment of 
those kind of, you know, the wet fields, if you like, down by the river and the, the riparian edges, then you'd have increases in biodiversity, you'd increase um, the ability of the land to absorb those floods that you were discussing with Trish, and we'd also then improve our, our water quality. So they're the three policy areas. And then we also do need a more integrated catchment-based approach so that you're not just looking at you know, what's happening on one farm going into one stream. You're looking at what are the cumulative impacts of all of, let's say, the intensive dairy farms in that catchment on the river taking into account as well maybe a wastewater treatment plant that's downstream, maybe there's forestry upstream, we need to take a whole catchment approach. And then the final piece and very important piece of that is involving the stakeholders and the local communities in that, in doing the kind of activities that Trish and Barry are talking about, but also involving them in the actual decision-making around how our rivers and lakes are managed. Last week, the environmental pillar, which represents 32 environmental organizations in Ireland, formally withdrew from the government's committee on the Agri-Food Strategy 2030. Due to the committee's perceived failure to align our future agricultural policies with environmental protection, and Swan wrote a statement of support for that decision in which you accused the committee of squandering an opportunity to be a true leader in sustainable food production. So do you think this opportunity to actually address agricultural intensification and its damages to the environment has perhaps been lost with the absence of any environmental group at the table in these negotiations. Yeah, it very it, the whole process has been very, very disappointing. Um, I think the opportunity really to have any influence was probably lost the day the committee was established because we had been, as a sector, had been pushing very hard for a very inclusive, you know, democratic process that would engage you know, the Irish public in, you know, how they would like agriculture and food production to be planned into the future. Um, and unfortunately, that process wasn't forthcoming. We got an industry-led um, committee. Then we said, well, can we have people representing climate and water as well as the pillar on it? They also said no to that. And we also accepted that. And we put forward our one representative that was permitted. And then Karen worked very hard to represent all of our interests of the three coalitions on water, biodiversity and on climate um, and we engaged as a sector in very good faith at every step of the way. Karen didn't miss a meeting. We made numerous written submissions. And it just became very, very clear that this strategy was just more of business as usual approach to food production, very much going to perpetuate intensive agriculture and was really caught, you know, completely ignoring the calls for the dramatic policy shift that we, that we needed to address all of these multiple issues that we've discussed this morning, I know we've been focusing on water, but also biodiversity and climate. And so, you know, we had seen a draft and we just realized that there was no way we could put our name to it. And it wasn't in any way addressing any of the any of our environment, many environmental uh, crises. I think that was really disappointing for anyone who cares about environmental issues in Ireland. But, you know, we do have green fingers all over the current program for government and the Green Party is in that coalition. So are you at all optimistic that water quality will improve in Ireland as a result of this? I think it depends how the government responds. We, as a sector, we're going to uh, issue our own proposals for, you know, how an agriculture and food production system that would protect all of the you know environmental indicators and I think it will depend how the government responds to that as to how optimistic I feel because you know agriculture is the big pressure I do feel very optimistic about 
public interest in water and you know the, the work of Barry's groups and of Trish and others Rivers Trust and there is a huge groundswell of interest now in water and you know in aquatic biodiversity and I think that will probably push government in the right direction but at the moment I think it's it's too soon to say it there'll be a lot to play for in the next couple of weeks I think we were glad to see in the program of government a commitment to review the nitrates derogation, which facilitates you know, intensive agriculture, and also happy to see a commitment to a strengthened river basin management plan. So the government are saying the right things, but I think it's how they act in the coming weeks and months that will that will really um, uh, give us a true indication of, of their plans for you know whether they're going to protect our, our rivers, lakes and bays and coastal waters over the next decade. Well, we'll watch that space. Sinead O'Brien, Trish Murphy and Barry Dean, thank you so much for joining the conversation here on Down to Earth. Up next, Charity Water's Brian Hoyer joins us from the USA to talk about the global fight for clean water. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi. An asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. You're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, the brilliant Creedence Clearwater Revival with Have You Ever Seen the Rain? And speaking of rain, in a few minutes, we'll be talking to the winky weatherman, Gerald Fleming, about his green life. But before that, my next guest has dedicated his career to the public health and humanitarian sectors, leading emergency response efforts in large disasters, including the cholera epidemic in Haiti. Brian Hoyer is the Vice President of Program Operations for Charity Water, which is a nonprofit organization bringing clean and safe drinking water to people in need around the world. Thanks so much for joining us all the way from New York, Brian. Hi, Cara. Great to meet you. Nice to join you. Brian, the World Economic Forum's 2020 Global Risk Report called the water crisis the fifth greatest global risk in terms of impact to society. How much of a crisis is this global water crisis? Great question. I think that's what we wake up every day working on at Charity Water. And the real goal that we have of the water crisis is to solve access to water and sanitation for the 844 million people that lack basic access to drinking water today. So that's it's it's a stat that we hear over and over, but it's you've got to like bring it down to earth. And some different ways I think about it, I think of um, more than 50% of health centers in the developing world do not have water connections on premises, which just wow. is amazing when you think of the, the needs for water at a health center oh. or schools, for example, um, globally, 50% of schools do not have soap and water at the school. So those are some just kind of examples that bring it to life for me, but it's really about those families and those communities that are still struggling to, to access that basic water. 785 million people lacking access to safe water. That's nearly one in 10 people in the world. And your organization argues that clean water changes everything. So explain what you mean by that statement. That's right. It's it's so um, clear in my mind too, because it follows my own trajectory where I've gone from kind of general public health to focusing here on water and sanitation. For me, it's it's foundational. And that's what we see at communities as well. So accessing safe water is the foundational step to development. With safe water comes improved health. With improved health comes improved livelihoods for families. They're able to focus on diversifying their income or 
focus on farming or a small business that they have, plus the children who generally bear the burden of collecting water are able to spend more time in school. So the, the attendance rates at school go up, which has you know, multiplicative effects on, on the health of a family. Also, um, obviously there's much more of a burden on women and children um, and, and girls especially for collecting water. So when any kind of access is improved, then there's um, you know, extreme effects on the safety and, and access and opportunities for women and girls as well. When I was in university way back when, there was a lot of talk in the media at the time about impending water wars and global water shortages. And there now it seems to be an indication that climate change could worsen those kind of conflicts. So what's your sense of what's happening globally regarding climate change and its impact on water resources? There's a great tie-in to, to our work, and you're seeing a lot of the answers to your questions I'm taking to the really community level, because what we do is focus on rural communities, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, who do not have access to water. And when you think of that in terms of climate change, I kind of reorient the question towards what's, what's the impact on these communities? And those are the most vulnerable communities in, in the world. They're, you know, they're steps away from losing their livelihood or securing their next meal or ensuring that school fees are paid. So when a, a shock from climate change, whether it's an extreme weather event, flooding, drought, um, locust events that, that can totally change the course of a year for one of those families, they're so close to basically the edge. That's why we call families vulnerable that securing safe water access is so important to be able to shore up against some of those shocks that are happening more frequently. The rural communities that you work with uh, wouldn't really, they wouldn't have the kind of access to wastewater treatment facilities or water treatment facilities that we do. So finding ways to get clean water to them can't be easy. So what kind of solutions work in those areas? The key to that question is to be flexible, to be solution agnostic, to apply the right solution for the context, because every single one of these communities, there's hundreds of thousands of them, is going to require a different solutions. So I think the first thing is approach without that fixed mindset. And the, the second thing is identify local experts, local partners, people who understand the context and both the, the geology and the, the groundwater situation to be able to apply the right solution. So, you know, for charity water, what that means is in a place like Cambodia, where surface water is actually plentiful, there is a lot of water, the problem there is accessing clean water. So the solution for that context is for us, we're supporting a partnership that that builds 22,000 of these household level filters every year. We call them biosand filters using um, a really incredible technology that's that's pretty easy to create. And, and that's taking surface water and cleaning it. Whereas in another community in, I don't know, rural Kenya or Mali or Niger, places that have less surface water, um, but still communities aren't accessing clean water, then that requires drilling down to the, the clean groundwater and implementing a really quality hand pump on top of that where you know it's protected and communities have are trained on how to maintain and upkeep those hand pumps. Um, so that kind of solution will be very different. You've collected a lot of data from the projects you've been involved in with Charity Water. So what kind of impact have you seen? A lot of data is, is almost an understatement. We've, in the last four or five years, when we last kind of summarized this data, we've collected 48,000 household surveys. And we're, we're gathering um, input so that we can improve our programs. And 
I think one of the couple of key things that I, I can pull out right now just to, to share are some metrics on collection time. So, so thinking of a family, the amount of time that it takes them when they leave their house, go to the water point that is providing clean water, maybe stand in line, wait for other community members to collect water and get back home. That at the beginning, before we start working with them is 40 minutes. And that's, if you think of that multiple times a day, so that's for one trip. So if it's a household of six or eight people um, and they use 10 or 15 liters per day, that's gonna be multiple trips. Just think of that multiplied by a single household and then a single community. After, on average, after our interventions, when we help to improve that water point or provide a new water point, then that number comes down to 18 minutes. So we're always striving to go further. You know, there's there's service levels. We refer to them as service levels. How do you improve that service level? So the ultimate goal is here in my apartment in New York, I have a sink five feet away that I can go and turn on. So that's that's a much quicker collection time. It's in-home connections. So that's going further up that service ladder. So there's never, there's not an end point to that, that number of minutes for collection time, but we want to get that even faster. Um, there's other ways to look at it. We, we think of improved sources before working with communities. Um, on average, 52% of communities were using an improved source. Improved means it's not surface water. It's somehow um, a clean source, so it's protected. Um, at the end of, of the interventions that, that our partners are supporting with these communities, it goes up to 94% using improved sources. So we have all kinds of stuff like that, but, but overall, Charity Water has, has funded 60,000 projects and those projects are serving 11.7 million people. So you think of those astronomical figures of, of 844 million people without access. Our organization is started in 2006 and we feel like we're moving. We've, we've reached, um, you know, 11.7 million unique people, but there's so much longer to go. And, and our goal is to just continue to scale and speed up. So every time we use water, even in New York or here in Ireland, we contaminate it with our detergents and shampoos and even the pharmaceuticals we use. So what do you think is a truly sustainable water system as long as humans are using it? There's water cycles everywhere. So it's about thinking for the future, building projects that account for the future. So whether it's protecting the area where water is regenerating the groundwater. So it means educating community, making sure that a swampland, for example, is recognized for the value of that water cycle in that community and is not drained to become farmland. So as soon as a community is educated and brought along into that knowledge of why it's important to protect the resource from, from the very beginning all the way through to use and then sanitation where all of the sanitation is actually protected and brought underground and not kept on the surface, then with that education and knowledge, communities know to to be a part of projects that think 20 years out, think about population growth, think about how contaminated water and waste is, is properly and safely contained so that the water isn't contaminated on the next cycle. Um, so I, I think, I mean, everything that is human made does break. So I think a lot of these solutions are, we're talking about hand pumps or solar piped systems or, or things that are, that are human made. So of course they, they will break down. So that's the other half of sustainability is um, making sure that there's the right kind of trust, right kind of um, education and, and support after the actual infrastructure is, is completed and constructed for a community to take on that 
replacement and maintenance and operations afterwards to make sure that it is sustainable and safe for years to come in the future. Well, my thanks to Charity Water's Brian Hoyer for giving us a global perspective on our water resources. Stay tuned is coming up next. Gerald Fleming will be telling me about his green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, the weatherman known for his endearing wink, Gerald Fleming, joins us on Down to Earth. Hi, Ger, welcome. Hi, Cara. Good to hear you. You too. Jerry. you're best known for your long career in Met Aaron from 1980 until your retirement as head of forecasting in 2017. But I was really surprised to learn that from the 1980s onwards, you spent a lot of time visiting community and farming groups to talk about climate change. So what prompted you to take that up as a kind of hobby, really, outside of your work for Met Aaron? I suppose it's not so much a hobby as part of my professional responsibility in a wider sense I would have thought when when I was in the weather business of course I became aware of the problems that climate change was going to bring us probably earlier than than most people given the business I was in Uh, and I felt it was important because I had a public profile I was doing television work radio work who I was people I hope you know trusted something some things that I said I felt that I should use that trust to bring that message to people explain things to people let them understand what this problem that was coming down the tracks was so they'd be able to think about it and adjust to it because clearly it's a problem we all have to adjust to in society. So you're probably one of the Ireland's first climate communicators as far as I can tell. So how have you seen climate communication change over the past four decades? I think in those early days it was very much just about the science. Here's the science, here's what's happening, uh, what's likely to happen, here are the sorts of things we need to think about to mitigate it, to uh, change our lifestyles. So in terms of talking to farmers, we were talking about uh, the need probably to plant more forests and that at that time, we probably hadn't got much of a handle on the meat issue in a sense, how meat is so much more carbon intensive than than plant-based foods and other things like that, pardon me. So it was an earlier stage. And of course we, we weren't dealing at that stage with the, what I might call the misinformation which came out much later and much stronger as the various vested interests in society who were invested in the carbon economy uh, began to put out messages which I suppose need waters. Your former employer, MedAaron, has been criticised in recent years for its lack of engagement in communicating the climate crisis to the Irish public. So what's your view on MedAaron's role in, in educating the public on climate change? Well, Madeiran's primary role is to take the measurements on which we base our science. And I think that's a very important role and it's seen as totally objective and that the trust which people have in Madeiran is is not in any sense weakened by their taking a stance on something which might be seen as political because anything to do with society ultimately is political. So we need to separate the scientific from the societal. There are other bodies within the public service structure, most notably the EPA, that have that mandate to, if you like, start to educate and inform and advise society on things to do. And, and that's very important. And Materan works very closely with the EPA. So Materan has to walk a very fine line. Of course, as atmospheric scientists, the people in Materan know better than most what's happening and what's likely to happen if society doesn't change. But they're also the custodians of the record on which 
scientifically based to science. So they need to walk that fine line between being scientifically objective and getting the message across, but in a scientific manner, not getting too involved in the societal choices which are going to have to be made, because those, in a sense, are societal and political decisions, which are very difficult for a scientific organization to get involved in that discussion without, I suppose, being seen to have their scientific objectivity compromised. You know, they're in a privileged position that they that they have the attention of the public every day and giving weather forecasts. And, and some people have argued that maybe they should be mentioning climate change every day or every week in the same way that The Guardian has made an effort to put climate change on the front cover of their paper every week. Do, do you think maybe Met Aaron should be making a conscious effort to, to say climate change when they report the weather? The whole link between day-to-day weather and climate change is a difficult one, and it, it's got a lot more uh, easy to talk about that in recent years when what we call attribution studies, when a particular event is studied, it might be a storm or something like that, and the likelihood of it happening in our current climate as against our climate as it would have been 50 years ago uh, is is calculated. But those are not easy calculations to make, and they're not something that are available on, on a daily basis. So your average forecaster sitting in the office in Montrose in RTE getting together their television bulletin is not going to have that information to hand with or get with regard to events that either have just happened or are imminently about to happen. Also, I think people do minimize the um, the challenge in explaining and describing the weather to 5 million people plus uh, in Ireland, uh, in different parts of the country, who may have different, very different experiences of weather in the coming four or five days. And we're trying to give forecasts out to four, five, six days ahead. We've got two minutes to do it. You know, it's not like you're standing up to give a lecture. You've got a very short amount of period of time period to deliver a message, a very important message to people about uh, what's likely to happen meteorologically in the next four or five days, different messages for different places. That's enough of a challenge, I think, before starting down the road of climate change. I think weather presenters do have a role to play but it's not in that two-minute slot after the nine o'clock news. I always thought maybe if they didn't spend so much time telling us what the weather was like in Australia, they might have time to talk about climate change. But in 2019, you and I presented a documentary for RTE's Climate Week called Will Ireland Survive 2050? And I got to go film in Carlo and Cork for that program. And you went to Copenhagen and Greenland, but I swear I'm not jealous at all. Having already known a lot about climate change before that trip, what did you find most surprising when you went? I think what was very strong for me was the uh, experience of people we spoke with in Greenland who, in a sense, are on the front line because we know that the Arctic and the Antarctic are both heating much more quickly than other parts of the globe. And that, that's been a very robust prediction of climate change science from the very beginning, that the polar regions would be the ones where the greatest temperature increases would be experienced. And, and that's been shown to be have been the case. It, it's been a, a very... Um, successful prediction, if you like, if you want to look at the, the theory and, and the prediction and what we've measured. So talking to people who'd lived there and how much the ice sheet had retreated, and the place we went to, uh, Kangaluswak, which is really the main airport within Greenland, it's actually in a desert, uh, and it's on the far side of Greenland, the western side of Greenland, very, very dry area. So you have to travel a bit from the town itself, with a very small town, uh, to get to the ice sheet. And then when you get to climb up on the ice sheet, you can almost see and hear it just melt away. Uh, and that's quite a, an eerie feeling. It's a vast ice sheet, of course, and it will take hundreds, if not thousands of years to melt. But the amount of liquid water that will result when that solid ice melts and, and the rise that that will 
bring to the oceans and the effects it may have on the weather patterns in our northern hemisphere as the whole temperature regime changes from north to south. You know, those are very fundamental changes coming down the tracks for us in, um, in, 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 in the, I suppose, we'd call it the near future meteorologically in the next couple of hundred years. You've spoken about Greenland's <coughs> impact on sea level rise, and you've spent a good deal of time in countries like Myanmar and Bangladesh in your work for the World Meteorological Organization. Both of those countries are particularly susceptible to climate change and sea level rise. So what have you observed in your work there regarding the impacts of climate change and their ability to adapt to it? This is one of the paradoxes, I suppose. Those who have created the problem, by and large, which is Western society, are not the ones who are going to suffer the worst from it. The ones who are going to suffer the worst are the poorest in our societies, in our globe. And those are largely people living in very marginal conditions, very often on deltas or very low-lying ground. In the Bay of Bengal, where tropical cyclones occur, typically a number of them every year, you've got particularly two large river deltas in Bangladesh and, and in Bengal, in West Bengal, part of India, you've got the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, and then you've got the Irrawaddy from uh, Myanmar. And they're both areas where a lot of people live, very, very many, many, tens of millions of people eking out a living from fishing or from farming and hugely vulnerable to sea surge rises, to strong winds, to heavy rains that come with tropical cyclones. So I suppose what we've learned and what we've seen is the vulnerability of of society and how over time we're actually pushing people into becoming more vulnerable by forcing them into living and, and scratching out a living in, in places that are, are more and more at risk and how that inequality that exists between East and West uh, is, is in a sense magnified when you look at the potential effects of climate change. Beyond the general topic of climate change, what are the more specific environmental challenges that you think we should be most concerned about here in Ireland? I suppose many of them are well ventilated, uh, getting our transport system decarbonized, our electricity system, the ESP, to be fair, are uh, gone on that road of, of wind power and so on. And we need a lot more of that. Uh, if we are going to have electric cars and they're going to make sense, we must expect that the electricity that drives them doesn't come from burning coal or oil or fuel, that it comes from renewable sources. Uh, and that will be a huge challenge, of course, to put in a network that would support that. But housing, I think, is one of the areas where we've really taken our eye off the ball because we've known about this for 30 or 40 years and how much how, how many houses have been built in Ireland in the last 40 years or thereabouts and how many of them have been built to really high standards of energy consumption you know I know we have our rating system now from our A1 to our B's to our C's and our D's uh, but there's an enormous amount of work to do to bring our housing stock up to a point where on this, you know, occasionally cold and always damp little rock that lives mm -hmm. off the northwest of continental Europe out in the Atlantic, our climate is our climate. And we know that a lot of the year it's actually pleasant enough, but there are four or five months uh, through the autumn, winter and early spring, which are chilly. We're going to need heat. Uh, we need to be able to dry the air to live comfortably because we live in a very humid environment. We live in a windy environment. Uh, wind you know, sucks the heat out of houses with cold wind. I live in Wexford where when we have an east or northeast wind, it's very difficult to keep the house warm. So these things are, are challenges to bring our housing stock up to the level of, of insulation and comfort that we can comfortably live uh, in, in the decades to come. I understand you and your wife, Mary, are beginning a deep energy retrofit of your home. And, and that's something I want to do badly uh, to my 1950s bungalow. But I'm so intimidated by that whole process. So what's been your experience in these efforts to green your life? 
it's interesting when you look at it and particularly when you look at the economics of it. Yeah, I mean, we're in our early 60s now, so we're, I suppose, adapting our house for the next 30 years or 40 years that we hope to be on this earth. Uh, and part of that is a deep energy retrofit. The house itself was built in the 80s. It was built to a good standard, uh, double glazing, you know, good quality insulation uh, as of the standards of the time. Uh, in, I think it ranks as a C1 in terms of um, the, the current energy rating, which is, is not too bad. But, you know, we want to get it up into the A's. And that's going to cost us. Uh, and when you look at the cost economically, uh, it, it actually doesn't make sense economically because we only spend about a thousand euro a year on, on heating costs. We're probably going to have to spend 50 or 60,000 to bring it up to the level that we want to. If you look at that in our projected lifespan, that doesn't make sense. Of course, that's dedicated on the relatively cheap oil that's around at the moment. Um, but it's for more than that. We want to try and, and live in a house where our energy consumption is absolutely minimized. Uh, which is also comfortable for us as we get older and uh, that we, we can live in without expending too much either in terms of energy, either uh, carbon-based energy or our own energy for that matter. So it's it's part of that. So it's it's a challenge and there's a, when you look at it, my wife is an architect and you know architects are where you and I would look at a wall and say that'd be nice if we painted it. They look at it and say well we'll fill up that door there and we'll break through a window there and you know they think in a different scale to the rest of us which is good uh, but it is a bit scary when you go down that road yeah so there's no financial payback for you undertaking this work even with the grants which might actually save you about half of that 50,000 euro cost but uh what's your motivation there for isn't, doing this no what's your motivation then because yeah, because i think it's the right thing to do uh, you know we we can afford to do it ourselves, thankfully, uh, but I'm aware that there are very, very many people in the country cannot afford that. And I think it's something the government are going to have to look at, you know, the amount of money needed to bring the housing stock of the country up to an acceptable level of, of um, energy use. It's money which, in a sense, will be well spent because the building industry money that's spent in it generally stays within the country, circulates around it, that rising tide that lifts all boats uh, paradigm I suppose which doesn't work all the time but works with some industries so I think it's money that the government knows is is well spent but uh, I suppose particularly at the moment with the pandemic and with the payments that have been gone out the last thing the Department of Finance wants to uh, know about is another uh, large funding source but at the same time I think it's something we're just going to have to do. Well there's been an 80% increase in uh, the amount of money being allocated to deep energy retrofit by the government but what else do you think that we need to do now in Ireland to help inspire action on climate change? You know, we have a pretty strong voice in the world culturally. We're a small country, but we punch well above our weight. Obviously, we have a seat of the UN Security Council now for the next few years. You know, even that itself is an indication of the respect to which we're held. And I think we have that voice that we can bring out to other countries. But if we're to do so, we've got to get our own house in order first, you know, not to be um, preaching one thing and doing another. Uh, obviously, our agriculture, too, is uh, very much based around dairy and, and that's probably going to have to move to some extent i mean our agriculture is actually relatively carbon friendly compared to other agricultures which are much more intensive we're fortunate to live on an island where grass grows very freely and so on yeah but, you know people are still going to have to eat so i think it's really more a question of adjusting our agricultural practices rather than uh, de destructing them in any sense you mentioned how awareness on dietary changes has really increased since you started communicating about climate change have you changed your own diet at all we do we don't as much meat probably as we used to i'm not saying that i don't like meat i do and uh, use it a bit in my cooking but we try to stick to plant-based meals maybe a couple of times a week certainly for lunches and that is generally salads and so on 
our soups. Um, so we do ease back. But I think, you know, we, we pay very little for the quality of the meat and fish that we get. We ought to be paying an awful lot more. The farmers ought to be getting much more per kilo and the fishers uh, so that they can continue to make a living by producing less in quantity. But I won't say more in quality because the quality is already very high. But if I compare the cost of meat in this country to places, other places I've been uh, across continental Europe, you know, we, we pay very little for very high quality. Um, I'm not saying food costs are not an issue for many people. And I know they are. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I, I don't have to worry about the cost of food as such. It's not a major item in my budget as a percentage of, of, my, of what I have to, to spend. Uh, for others, that's not the case. But by and large, I don't think we realize how good the quality of our food is and how little we pay for it in comparison to others. So maybe we have to change that. Well, I completely agree. My thanks to meteorologist Gerald Fleming for sharing his green life with us on Down to Earth.